Hey, we're going to get jump in right away this morning, so grab your Bibles if you have them today. Pull open to Luke chapter 9. If you forgot yours or don't have one, grab one out of the pew rack in front of you. We're on page 841 if you're using one of those Bibles. 24 chapters in the Gospel of Luke, and we are already through eight of them. So we are flying through this gospel. Don't groan. Don't even, don't give us that attitude. Um, we're a third of the way done and there's some great stuff ahead. So uh, today we're reading nine verses that will give us just a, yet another wonderful glimpse and view of Jesus and his kingdom um, as today we learn about the one who sends. Luke chapter 9, verses 1 through 9. When Jesus had called the twelve together, He gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. He told them, take nothing for the journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra shirt. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that town. If people do not welcome you, leave their town and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. So they set out and went from village to village, proclaiming the good news and healing people everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was going on, and he was perplexed because some were saying that John had been raised from the dead, others that Elijah had appeared, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago had come back to life. But Herod said, I beheaded John. Who then is this I hear such things about? And he tried to see him. So right off the bat, as Luke launches us into this passage, he tells us that Jesus is calling and sending who? Yeah, the twelve together. And I, and I bring this up because there's another place in Luke as we move forward, actually in chapter 10, where Jesus will send out 72 of his disciples, and he will send them out in pairs, we'll send them out two by two. Um, But in this section, he is calling and sending the twelve together, and that is very significant. And Luke lets us know this right away for a very particular reason. Here's why. All throughout the Old Testament, the people of God were marked by this number twelve. Very significant, important number for them. Uh, The twelve sons of Jacob, the twelve tribes of Israel. That was God's people, this this sort of grouping of twelve. And and they lived out their calling as God's people in this world in a very uh, specific and certain way. But now, what Luke is explaining to us, what Luke is showing us, is that Jesus has come, and what he is doing is redefining what it means to live as God's people in this world. He's saying, this is what it looks like to be God's people. This is what you thought it looked like. This is how you lived it out then. But I'm here to send you out in a new way, to live as God's people the way He intends you to live in this world. And in this message, we're going to talk about what it looks like to be sent as God's people. And I'm going to break it down for us this morning into four P's. We're going to look at four P words um, that describe Jesus and how He sends us out to be the people of God, the church in the world in which we live. So our first, our first word, our first P word is this. Jesus sends us to proclaim. Verse 2, And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Verse 6, So they set out and went from village to village proclaiming the good news and healing people everywhere. 
Actually, what we see here is in this is, is Jesus' ministry all throughout the Gospel of Luke, Luke up until this point has been Him, Jesus Himself, teaching and healing. Healing, teaching, teaching, healing. Talking about the kingdom and then demonstrating the impact it has when it comes. And now, in this moment, we see Jesus passing off his ministry to bring and advance the kingdom to the twelve. He now is sending them and saying, it's your turn to go and say and show and demonstrate and declare what my kingdom is all about. You see, for Jesus, friends, and catch this, don't miss this point, proclamation is not just words. This is not just a message that he comes to offer, that he sends them with. It's a reality. The gospel is not just something we say. It's a way of life. Here's a quote for you. The gospel is a message that has so deeply transformed us that when we embrace it, evil shrinks back and healing and restoration occurs. You hear that? You like that? Is that significant? That quote comes from me. I just quoted myself, which I don't know if you're allowed to do that or not, but I wrote that and I thought, man, that's really good. And I wanted you guys to pay attention. And I knew if I like, attributed it to someone else, you'd really focus. But if I just said it, you'd just be like, oh, whatever, it's just Dave. So, yeah, good stuff. Plus, Luis, last week, after like, promoting and saying that he writes famous books, I'll tell you, the, the amount of freedom I feel in this pulpit after Luis having spoken last week has just gone up like tenfold. Matt and I have never felt more emboldened, have we? All right, okay. Don't do it, he said. Don't do it. Okay. So there's this quote, uh, very significant. Uh, Here's what I want to point out to you. I want you to notice what two terms are used interchangeably in this passage. Uh, Terms in verse 2 and verse 6. One says they go to proclaim the kingdom of God. The other says they go proclaiming what? The good news, which is just the Greek word for gospel. Let me say this, friends, and we need to hear this. This is so central to what it means to be a Christ follower in our world. The gospel and the kingdom are one. They are the same thing. We cannot separate them one from another. Or maybe a better way to say it is simply this. The kingdom of God is the sphere, the dome, remember the king's dome, in which God is king and everything is the way he longs for it to be. And the good news, the gospel, is that the king has come to establish his kingdom on earth. That's the gospel. That's good news. Through Jesus, everything and all of creation, including you and your eternal soul, is being brought under the rule and reign of God. You can be a part of advancing that kingdom, of proclaiming that mission, of sharing that good news. The king has come to establish his kingdom. That's the gospel. So here's the first question today. Are you proclaiming the good news of the kingdom? As you go, as you live in this world, day to day, does your life preach the gospel Do you say and show and demonstrate and declare that the King has come, that He's come to rule and reign and make things right? And do you offer that message and hope 
to a lost and dying world. Not, are you out there being perfect? Not, are you having weird, forced, awkward conversations with your neighbors that will make them avoid you for the rest of time? Not, are you trying really hard to impress people with your morality or your your very committed spirituality? But, but, are you so impacted by the rule of the king in your life that evil is shrinking back and healing and restoration is occurring in you and in the world around you. And because of this, people are seeing and hearing about the king who has come named Jesus. You see, that's a whole lot different. It's a whole lot different calling than just be good or be happy or go to heaven when you die. Jesus says when you go with the gospel of the kingdom... Even even evil will shrink back. You will even drive out demons, he says. You'll bump up against evil and it'll just sort of it'll sort of recoil from you. And that's why Jesus sends us with our second P today. Jesus sends us with power. Because we will need power if we're truly proclaiming the kingdom. If we go out with, with the full gospel, the gospel of the kingdom, and we, we show it and share it and declare it and demonstrate it, we're going to need the power of God. If you're just playing Christianity, if you're just doing church, power of God not needed. But if you want to engage in this mission, then the power of God is going to be an essential component for you. Now, as we move through this, let me just say a word here about this whole demon thing because we talked about it a couple weeks ago and I, I didn't really address it, but, but it shows up again here in this passage and so I want to I wanna just lift up a couple things. Some of you might be in here and you might be saying, you know, I don't even really know if I believe in demons. I mean, the only reason demons are mentioned in the Bible, Pastor Dave, are because this is, this is a very primitive culture. And in the primitive world back then, they didn't have things like science or medicine to explain things. And so they just took this demon label and they sort of smacked it on all this stuff they didn't know about. You know, epilepsy, demons, mental illness, demons, sickness, demons, disease, demons, right? So, I mean, are demons even a real thing? Friends, there are certainly some ancient people groups that attributed uh, demonic forces to things that we can now explain naturally through science and medicine. But friends, you cannot, hear this, you cannot accuse the Bible of this. In fact, I would argue that the Bible has one of the most complex, holistic, least naive, most multidimensional views of reality that there is. Let me give you an example. In Matthew chapter 24, this is what Matthew writes. This is right in the Bible. Think about the, the, how old this document is that, and think about what's being said here. It says, news about him, that's Jesus, news about Jesus spread all over Syria and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases, those suffering severe pain, the demon-possessed, those having seizures, and the paralyzed, and he healed them. So, so the Bible right away starts to differentiate between all these different categories the Bible understands that there's a difference between these different these things that, that are being listed here. And to make, make the case even more full, uh, the word translated seizures here is actually the Greek word that means anyone characterized by insanity, irrational behavior, or seizures. You see, the Bible understands the difference between insanity, mental illness, epilepsy, disease, demon possession, even thousands of years ago. The Bible was already making these distinctions. 
That's the first thing I want you to consider about the Bible. You cannot simply say they just slapped the label of demons on on everything out there because they just didn't. They very clearly differentiated between these things. Well, that's the first question. The second question that maybe you've wrestled with, maybe you've considered, I think has to be asked, um, is this. And some of you have thought this, like me. I've thought this. I've wrestled through this. Then why don't we ever see demon-possessed people in our world today? Like then... I mean, Jesus encountered one in our passage just a couple weeks ago. He, he sends the disciples out in this story as if demon-possessed folks are all over the place. Go out there and fix all those demon-possessed folks as if they're going to encounter someone on every corner with a demon. And that just doesn't line up with my experience. I don't walk around seeing lots of demon-possessed people. And if we're considering uh, demon possession to be this sort of exorcist kind of demon possession, then I'll go a step further and say, I don't know if I have ever in my entire life encountered someone who was possessed by a demon in that way. So what's the deal? Because when my experience and the Bible don't line up, when they don't match, when they don't come together, I have to figure that out. I have to rationalize that somehow and, and, and decide, is my experience wrong? Is the Bible wrong? How do these two, two kind of realities meet? And now... Um, what some of you will do at this point is you'll come up to me afterwards and you'll want to tell me all your demon stories from every single time you ever went on a mission trip and there are some, right? And you're in a no, Pastor Dave, no, I know, I know you have and I know there are stories. I don't need your stories. I, I believe your stories. My point is simply this. People in this room, I would just wager to guess, don't walk around encountering exorcists like demon people all the time. In fact, it rarely happens. Most of you have to leave the country to experience it. So, um, so what's the deal with that? Well, let me offer you a thought. And this, this is just thought for me, and actually I steal it from um, some of what C.S. Lewis wrote in his great work, The Screwtape Letters. Consider this. If you were the devil, and I know, and I know that's a stretch <laughs> for most of you. If you were the devil, and there were a bunch of people, an entire society really, that didn't truly believe you existed... Would you just outright reveal yourself or would you attempt to stay hidden and somewhat undercover? What, what strategy would you employ if that was you? If you were like seeking to promote evil and destruction throughout the world and you were the cause and culprit, but people didn't even really believe you existed, would you just reveal yourself? Here I am, everyone. Or would you stay undercover? Yeah, you'd stay undercover, wouldn't you? Because to be hidden, to not be seen is an advantage. When you're fighting a battle. A number of weeks ago, I was invited to go and play paintball with some guys to celebrate a friend of mine's birthday. And uh, the guys show up to this place and we're going to play paintball in this very forested area on this guy's property. And all the guys who, who have the guns, who own the guns, who have all the equipment, they show up on the scene and you can instantly tell who they are and then who the extra guys are who just got invited, me being one of them, because they are completely decked out in camo. Like everything on their body is camouflage. I, on the other hand, who showed up with Pastor Paul, am wearing this almost white, light gray hooded sweatshirt that just sort of glue in the dark. And I'm thinking, how's this going to go, right? So we go out to the paintball field. Paul happened to be wearing a similar colored uh, uh, shirt. And we get out there and we're playing paintball and I'm just getting obliterated. And finally we're on game like five. And there are a lot of kind of crazy fun stories I could tell you from this event. But this is perhaps the best. 
In game five, I had not won a game yet, and I'm thinking, I just have to go for it this game. I just got to really just try hard. And so I'm advancing. I'm thinking, I'm just going to be aggressive. I'm going to attack. And the game starts, and I'm like running through the forest, and I'm charging. I'm trying to push back the enemy and get a good position. And I see this like big kind of hump of shrubbery. And so I just kind of run, I kind of leap into this shrubbery, and I'm down. I'm scoping out the enemy and trying to get my position. And I'm thinking, yeah, I've got him now. This is a great spot. And then all of a sudden, literally no exaggeration, like four feet from me, this guy on the other team just pops straight out of nowhere and just shoots me like point blank range. Like, and I'm just dead. And I'm like, what just happened? No, he's right there. He's like completely camo and I didn't even see him. Like four feet from me just took me by complete surprise. I hate paintball. I really, I don't, I'm just too big of a target. Like you can't even miss me if you try. And then I had this sweatshirt on that might as well have been flashing like, shoot me here. Here's my location. It was just a terrible, terrible event. It was not a fun birthday at all. Anyway, the point is this. Of course the enemy does not reveal himself overtly in a culture where people do not believe in him. And the question is, do you think that demons only manifest themselves with glowing red eyes and goblin voices? Do you think that's the only place they show up? If you don't see those things, then they're not real. Don't you think that the enemy, the prince of all liars, is just a bit more crafty than that? You see, friends, just like Jesus, we'd be silly to attribute every single place of brokenness and disease and struggle to demonic forces. Jesus doesn't do that. The Bible doesn't do that. But we'd also be foolish to pretend that sometimes demonic forces aren't at work in and through and behind these places of brokenness that we experience in our world. So don't assume that power to drive out demons, the power Jesus offers the disciples here, in our context, means going around like Gandalf from Lord of the Rings and holding up your arms and saying just the right combination of hocus-pocus. That's what, that's what Jesus is referring to here. Don't assume that because it's just not true. It might in some contexts, it might in some moments, but most of the time, in this world that we live in, driving out demons and pushing back the forces of evil means praying for people caught up in oppression. It means walking with them and having them let you down and then giving them a second chance and opening yourself up to even more pain and suffering and hurt. It means fighting the evil forces of materialism and offering generosity in the face of greed. It means getting involved with people who have problems in a way that's messy and risky and drags you out of your comfort zone. It means time, energy, resources that you don't have or would rather save or spend on personal comforts. It means looking around society at the broken places where the enemy has a stranglehold on people's lives and saying, what would it take for us, the church, the people of God, to be light in that place, to truly make a difference and have significant, deep, world-changing impact? It means coming together and asking questions like, What would it take for us to ensure that every child that gets pulled away from their mother and father and winds up in the foster care system surrounded by strangers has a loving Christian home to go to? What would that look like? Or every girl pulled out of trafficking, sex trafficking that's happening right here in Portland, that every one of those girls has a safe place to lay her head. You see, 
Too often, I think we read these kinds of statements from Jesus and we think things like this. Man, that sounds cool. Driving out demons? I wish I could experience that. No, you don't. It's hard. It's scary. It's hurtful and messy and destructive and filled with pain and suffering. That's what facing evil in this world looks like. It's not a cool movie or some awesome video game. Friends, second challenge today. Is there any place in your life where you really even need the power of God? Is there any place in your life where you really even need the power of God? Or have you orchestrated your life such that you can pretty much handle it on your own? Have you orchestrated your life that you're so insulated from the messy, evil, dark places of our world that the power of God would actually be of no use to you at all? God says, go, proclaim the kingdom. Know that you have power when you do. And next, understand that Jesus sends us to discover his provision. And that's our, that's our third P. Chapter three, or verse 3, he told them, take nothing for the journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra shirt. Friends, when the 12 tribes of Israel left Egypt and they set out for the promised land, they had to journey through this wilderness. And the wilderness was really just a giant, huge desert. And one of their big fears, like right away as they get into this adventure, is they realize they do not have enough provisions to make it. They're not going to make it with what they've brought with them. They cannot cross this desert and actually survive. And so they start to complain and they start to cry out to God. And what does God do? Does God say, you're right, let's go back. Here's all the stuff you need. No. What did he tell them? He said, every morning I will provide bread from heaven, manna, that you will find on the ground and you can pick up to eat. But you're only allowed to take enough for one day. If you take extra, it'll rot, it'll spoil, it'll just go bad. And so every day, every day, they had to trust that God would come through and provide for them again tomorrow. And God says this, in the same way my people today must go into the deserts of this world, trusting that even though they may not have what it takes to make it now, God will provide along the way. And then it says this, Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that town. If people do not welcome you, leave their town and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. And this is like kind of a snooty sounding verse a little bit. It's like Jesus with an attitude. Um, it's like all of a sudden Jesus has had a personality change here and he's just being vindictive and sort of, yeah, right? And sometimes Christians will use this verse as an excuse to say, hey, if you don't receive me or exactly what I'm saying about God or my doctrine or whatever, I have every right just to sort of dismiss you with an attitude. But I don't think that's what Jesus is saying here. I think he's getting at something else. You see, ancient Jews, when, when they went out into pagan Gentile territory and then they returned, they would shake the dust off of their feet before they re-entered the promised land. It's like a common practice. And what they were saying in this action was this, we will not let that dirty Gentile soil into our holy land. We won't let that dirty, awful, corrupt people corrupt us, God's holy people, in this holy place. Furthermore, if you went to someone's home 
and they didn't treat you hospitably, which you know, was often symbolized by the washing of a person's feet. That was a, a, a sort of a central way to show hospitality. When a guest came into your home, you would wash their feet. And we discovered that Jesus encountered this a few weeks back, right? We went to someone's home, this, this Pharisee, and he doesn't wash his feet, which is sort of like you kind of snubbed him a little bit. Um, but if the person doesn't wash your feet, or if they don't treat you hospitably, that word um, that I can't say right now in front of lots of people, this is fun. Um, if they don't treat you hospitably, got it. Uh, then a way to sort of uh, to sort of respond to that would be you would shake the dust off of your feet when you when you left, and and that would be a way of saying um, I don't receive your lack of hospitality. I refuse to carry it with me. And so notice what Jesus is driving at in this passage. Because for him, life in his kingdom is not a certain plot of land that needs to be kept holy. It's a people. It's a holy people. It's you and me. And Jesus says, if you are living a kingdom life and people receive you, no matter who they are, you accept them and you embrace them and you stay with them and you serve them. But but if they reject the kingdom life and message that you proclaim, then shake that dust off of your feet and refuse to carry their rejection. Because in the kingdom, friends, you don't have to carry the hurt and pain and rejection of people any longer. You have a new identity in Christ. You see, God not only provides what you need along the way, He also empowers you to shed what you don't need as well. Next question. Got any dust you need to shake off this morning? Got any unneeded baggage that you're hauling around on your journey? What are you carrying today that's preventing you from living the kingdom life Jesus is calling you to live? What words from or experiences from the past, what bitterness or pain or damage or fear has now latched on and become a part of your journey? And friends, I understand it sounds so nice to stand up here and just say, shake it off, shake it off. It's not just a good theological term, but also a cool Taylor Swift song. Um, But the truth of it is this. Some of you are carrying things that don't come off that easy. That you can't just shake off with a nice little sermon. Stuff that's stuck to you, that you've tried to shake for years, but it still remains. Stuff from a parent that has formed your identity. Stuff from your youth that sits back and replays in the back of your mind. Stuff from a spouse that betrayed you. Stuff from people that you thought were your friends. Stuff maybe that that you brought on yourself. Decisions you made or choices you engaged in or stuff that you can never take back and change. And it just lingers there and weighs you down. Friends, Jesus says that he has come to set us free from those things. And actually, I believe this is one of the reasons why we are sent together. Not by ourselves, but as a group and as a family and as a people. Because sometimes, here's the truth, we need help shaking off the dust. Maybe that's you this morning. And if, if so, if there's things in your life, there's stuff that you just need help shaking off, I want to I mention uh, some ministries that might help. Actually, there are a number of wonderful ministries that our church offers. If you pick up one of these booklets... I'm in the lobby at the Information Center. Welcome to Cedar Mill. 
There's a a page towards the back that reads care ministries, places for help and healing. And there are a number of just phenomenal ministries in here that are designed specifically to help you shake some of that stuff off that God doesn't want you carrying anymore. But I want to talk about just one. It's called Soul Care. Soul Care is a group of people, a group of men for men and a group of women for women that can just come alongside and help you figure out some of the stuff that you need to let go on your journey. In fact, last year, Soul Care Ministry asked all the pastors from the pastoral staff to come and be a part of it just to experience it, just to experience it one time, just so we'd have a, a reference point, a, frame, a place of connection so that we would know it, if it would be useful for people that we met with. And so I went. I decided to go. I, I was invited. I was told I had to go, so I did it. And I was new enough that I... Didn't know I had any choice, so I did. And I actually went with a pretty good attitude, but I honestly wasn't expecting anything significant to happen. And I went and I met with these guys, and they started to do soul care, like care for my soul. And I've had five meetings with that group and guys from it since that time. Because as it turned out, there was some dust that I needed to shake off that I didn't even know that I was carrying. Friends, Jesus doesn't ask you to be ready for the journey. He just asks you to go, trusting that he'll provide along the way. Trusting that he'll provide the stuff you need and help you shed the stuff you don't. Finally, our last P, the last P of our passage this morning, verses 7 through 9. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was going on and he was perplexed because some were saying that John had been raised from the dead, others that Elijah had appeared and still others that one of the prophets of long ago had come back to life. But Herod said, I beheaded John. Who then is this I hear such things about? And he tried to see him. He tried to see Jesus. Our final P this morning, you could probably guess it, is perplexed. Jesus sends us to perplexed. Here's what I love about these verses. I, I love the way Luke tells this story because Herod in this passage is actually perplexed about Jesus, not because of what Jesus has done, but because of what the disciples are doing. Now certainly Herod has heard about Jesus and he knows what he's done himself. But if you look at how Luke shares this, in verse 6 he says, So they, the disciples, went out from village to village proclaiming the good news and healing people everywhere. Now Herod, the Tetrarch, heard about all that was going on, heard about all that the disciples were doing in Jesus' name, and he was perplexed. You see, Herod has never seen anything like this before. This is not what religion looks like. Herod had seen lots of religion. This is not just a heightened sense of morality, people being extra good, like super committed to God. Herod had seen people try that before. Herod actually looks at these disciples and how they're living and and how they're they're walking with God in this new way and he has no categories to to put them in. He doesn't know what to do with Jesus. He doesn't fit here, he doesn't fit here, he doesn't fit here. It's perplexing. Friends, of course it is. When the kingdom shows up, it's perplexing. It's confounding. It's confusing. It doesn't always make sense. It doesn't line up with common sense all the time. It causes people to do and say things in their lives that they would never do without the power of God at work in them. 
Final questions this morning. Does your life offer the kingdom in any ways that perplex people? Not, I mean, and I'll let you off the hook, not even your whole life. I'm just going to say, is there any place, just one single solitary place, is there any place in your life where people are forced to wonder who this Jesus that has transformed you truly is? Anything perplexing about you because of God's work in and through you today? Are you proclaiming the kingdom with power and proclamation such that there are people in this world like Herod who say, man... You're doing that in the name of Jesus. I've got to see him. You see, friends, as, as we consider that this morning, we're going to have some friends um, going to the tank over here to be baptized. And that's what baptism really is. It's this declaration that I will be crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, that, but Christ who lives in me. It's this declaration that when people see my life when they see my actions, when they hear my words and they watch how I'm living, they're going to be confounded and they're not going to be saying, wow, you're really cool, you're really awesome. Notice that Herod doesn't go back and go, man, these disciples are really amazing. I can't wait to meet them. No, he looks through them to the one who empowers them. Baptism says, I pray that God will use me so powerfully that people will be forced to look through me and not see me but see the one who has saved me and transformed me and renewed me and that they'll not be drawn to me, but be drawn to Jesus. Any place in your life, maybe maybe never really asked me, is there any place in your life where God is calling you right now? He's asking you to step out. He's asking you to move forward. He's saying, come with me. I want to send you. Let's go on mission. I know it's confounding. I know it's perplexing. I know it doesn't make any sense. I know your family and friends and neighbors and the people around you aren't going to get it at all. But do it. Come with me. Any perplexing places for you? As you consider that, I'm going to pray and we're going to sing a song and then we're going to celebrate this moment of mission, this moment of death to self and new life in Jesus with some folks who are being baptized. So, so pray with me and then, and then we'll do that together. Father, thank you for, for this little story where you send these men and I can only imagine how they felt. They were nervous, terrified, scared, insecure and yet they go and they... They live for you in such a way that the world is changed and the world isn't drawn to them but to you. And so God, our prayer today is that you'd help us to be a church, a people that lives out our faith so reliant on you, so dialed into your power and provision and proclamation that people would just have to wonder who is this God that they serve. That's our prayer, Jesus, that you get all the glory. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.